Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Harbin Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, and every U.S. military base in the world, and your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV Network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. Donald Trump has basically laid out his re-election strategy for 2020. And I think it's really important that we all figure this out. Donald Trump is saying basically to white working class people that he gets it, that it's all about jobs. It's not all about the economy necessarily. White working class people are not invested in the stock market. If the stock market goes down, not that big a deal, but they are concerned about jobs. And this is Trump's base. And they get that the two things, since Reaganism took over the United States, essentially, and no president, Republican or Democrat, has yet rolled back Reaganism. We are still in that era of neoliberal free trade and that kind of stuff. And Trump gets this, by the way, and the Democrats have been saying this forever. And Trump is campaigning basically on old Democratic talking points, old Democrat, progressive Democratic positions. If you don't enforce your own immigration laws within your own country, or at least your own laws that have to do with who's working where and when, if you don't enforce those laws, you're going to end up diluting your labor force, which is going to drive down wages. So Trump is positioning his anti-immigrant rant, which was basically a racist rant, also as a jobs rant. And you can count on the rhetoric on that just going up exponentially over the next 18 months until the election number one. And number two, trade. White working class people know that there used to be good jobs in this country in manufacturing, and there aren't anymore. I've got an article about this over at Alternet right now, and there's also a copy. Uh, it's also printed over at commondreams.org, alternate.org and commondreams.org, about trade. And Trump is using traditionally democratic, progressive democratic position to say that this neoliberalism, you know, NAFTA, that was negotiated by Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. And the final deal, Reagan started the negotiations, 
George Bush Sr. finished those negotiations in 1992 and brought NAFTA to the floor and was ready to pass it. NAFTA passed Congress with a majority of Republican votes, not a majority of Democratic votes. Democrats, by and large, were opposed to this. And Trump is going to be running against NAFTA. He's going to be, and, you know, he didn't do the TPP. It's toxic. He is going to be basically saying, I'm going to bring you back your jobs. And the way I'm going to do it is twofold. Number one, I'm going to get rid of cheap labor competition inside the United States by basically deporting people who don't have a legal right to be here. Trump is going to be saying that. And number two, he's going to be saying that he's going to bring back jobs to the United States by making it more expensive to manufacture overseas. Because the bottom line is that you say, oh, with these evil companies, they move their manufacturing offshore. Well, why did they start doing that in the 1980s? Why didn't they do that before that? Why didn't they do that in the 1950s? Why didn't they do that in the, in the 1930s? Why didn't they do that in the 1870s? There was a lot of cheap labor all over the world. They didn't do that because they couldn't, because of tariffs. And because of domestic content requirements and all these kind of things. So basically, American workers know this. They know that companies move their production overseas for one simple reason. Labor is cheaper there. And on these two issues, by the way, Donald Trump is actually right. He's doing them wrong, and he's appealing to, you know, in the immigration issue, he's appealing to a racist base. And on the trade issue, he's appealing to a xenophobic base. But the logic behind both of these positions which he's going to run on in 2020. He's already running on. I'm getting his emails every other day or so. This is what he's running on, immigration and trade, and both of them are substituting for good jobs. Right? That's what he's, that's what he's going to be running on. And I'm telling you, if the Democrats don't step up to this thing, get ready for four more years of Donald Trump, six more years of Donald Trump as of right now, which is you know, pretty grim thinking, but hey, there you go. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment. But right now with us is Jamal Abdi, the president of the National Iranian American Council, NIAC. NIAC.org is the website. You can tweet him at jabdi, J-A-B-D-I. Jamal, welcome back to the program. Good to be here, Tom. Great to have you with us. So Donald Trump tweeted a threat to end Iran. I mean, end as in no right. more country. Uh, right. Tell me about this. Well, this is, uh, I think, Donald Trump's negotiating style. I think he actually does really want a deal with Iran, and he would probably accept the Obama nuclear deal if he could slap his name on it. But he threatened to, you know, if Iran attacks the United States, he would end Iran. He would end thousands of years of history and culture and people. But really, what his tweet said was what we're really concerned about, which is that the United States is sort of goading Iran into either Iran or one of its proxies doing something against either U.S. forces or Saudi interests, and that would actually provide an invitation for U.S. military action. And I think that that's exactly what some within the Trump administration are really aiming for. I think that in the week since Trump's tweet, he's actually backed off of that point and in Japan made it sound like he was desperate to negotiate with Iran. And so we've got this sort of this policy that nobody can quite figure out what it actually is, because I don't think there actually is a policy. I think you have different uh, people within the administration who have their own aims and 
you know, may the, may the most savvy operator within the White House win. So I, I've got a theory around this. I'd like to run it by you and, and ask you, A, if you think my theory might have some, some substance to it, and B, if so, then what do we make of that? Um, Trump was a real estate developer his entire life. You know, he, he inherited uh, this, this uh, real estate em- mini empire from his daddy, uh, along with 450-some-odd million dollars. And so if he wanted to build a new building in in Manhattan, which is where he you know really made his way, um, and there was some little property owner who was holding out saying, no, I'm not going to sell. I, you know, I own this little corner building where I've got my little grocery store and 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 Trump, you know, and the, and the value of that little corner building, let's say, is a million bucks. You just pull a number out of the air and Trump wants to pay eight hundred thousand bucks for it. And the guy who owns it wants one point two million. Uh, Trump's idea of a negotiation would be to go in and say to the guy, you know, you think you're going to get $1.2 million? You're going to get nothing. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to crush you into the ground. I'm going to build a building around you, and I'm going to seal you off, and you're going to end up at a crypt. There's going to be nothing left when I'm done with you. At which point the guy says, okay, okay, I'll take the $800,000. I am guessing that that's how he's been doing negotiations this whole entire life, you know, doing his bully routine, and then ultimately, in more cases than not, probably getting what he wants. And it seems to me like that's what he's trying to do in international relations. He was threatening Kim Jong-un with uh, complete annihilation of North Korea. He threatened China. This is repeated over and over again. And, you know, most recently his threat to end Iran, when in fact what he's trying to do is get to a negotiation. And it may just be the only way he knows how to do it. Does that make sense to you? I think that's completely right. I think that that's clearly... I don't know if you know Trump personally. That sounds like everything that I've read about. I don't, but I've read a lot. The president. Um, actually, I know people who know him personally in, okay. in New York in the real estate business. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is an approach that maybe works with Kim Jong Un, who you know wants to sit at the table with Trump. You know, if he gets that meeting, it's a big political win for him that he can take to his airwaves at home and show how important he is to his people. With Iran, it's the exact opposite. It's not a matter of scaring Iran to the table, which, you know, Iran's already at the table. It's the United States that left the table when we left the nuclear deal. But it's not a matter of scaring them. It's not a matter of Iran wanting something from the United States. Iran doesn't even necessarily want sanctions relief that would allow the United States to operate inside of Iran, because the leadership, the supreme leader, and many of the people around him actually really fear U.S. influence inside the country. And, you know, after the nuclear deal, which the current president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, really staked his political fortunes on, the biggest threat that the supreme leader identified was Western and specifically United States infiltration in Iran. So these guys actually view engagement with the United States not as a favor or not even as a political benefit, but actually as something that comes with great cost. And they have now learned from the United States and from Trump that they will pay the political cost to actually negotiate with the United States and then have the rug pulled out from under them on the whim of whoever the next president is. And so I think that, you know, if Trump really wants negotiations, he does have to follow the Obama approach, which was really predicated on signaling that concessions were in the offering and signaling that there is a respect there and making it sort of politically palatable for Iran's leaders to decide to come to the table. And he's done everything to the opposite of that. 
Well, in the last day or so, he has said, in fact, I think maybe he even said this in Japan, you know, that he hopes he can work something out with Iran. So we're now to the stage where he thinks he has intimidated the, the little landlord, but apparently not so much. I think you're right. The dynamics here are so different than the dynamics with Korea, uh, with North Korea. And he hasn't won anything with North Korea. In fact, he's lost. Kim is still building nuclear weapons, and now he's testing a whole brand new type of missile. But Trump doesn't want to lose face. I mean, it seems to me, Jamal, we're talking to Jamal Abdi, the president of the National Iranian American Council. It seems to me that Trump is actually kind of a chump. It's fairly easy to figure him out and that Shinzo Abe has done so. You know, he has figured out that if you give this guy a bunch of pomp and ceremony, give him a bunch of flattery and he'll give you what you want. Uh, You know, Abe was terrified that Trump was going to put tariffs on Japanese cars. And I don't think Trump is going to put tariffs on Japanese cars anymore. Do you think that given how important face is, in many cultures, certainly in many Middle Eastern cultures. And given the proud and legitimately proud history of Iran as a country that you know, hasn't been conquered in hundreds of years, maybe longer, a long-lasting you know, empire, as it were, or nation, that they would be willing to do that kind of essentially groveling that uh, Shinzo Abe did over the last weekend to Donald Trump in order to get what they want? Or is this going to be one of these things where the two sides are talking in such different ways, using such different frames and different worldviews, that the outcome is probably going to be bad? And if it's going to be a bad outcome, how do you think it's going to play out? Yeah, I don't think that the Iranians can really afford to grovel. You know, the people that would be leading the negotiations are already being attacked as having given up so much and got nothing in return from the previous negotiations that, you know, Trump left. So I think that's going to be very difficult. But I do know, you know, I've heard that the Iranians actually regret not taking Trump up on his offer to, not really an offer, but his, you know, he wanted to talk to Rouhani at the UN General Assembly his first year there in 2017. And he was rejected because he had given this speech that was disrespectful is probably too polite a term to call what Trump does. Yeah, it was trashing uh, Iran. Really just trashing Iran. Yeah. And so the Iranians turned down a, a meeting and, you know, normally they don't do those meetings anyway. And so I think that they really view that now as, look, this guy will give up the store if you stroke his ego a little bit. Now we've gotten to a point where I just don't know how that happens. And I do think that the Iranians, by ratcheting up the pressure on their side, have actually kind of called Trump's bluff a little bit and leveraged Trump's desire to actually not have a war. And the fact that he's now seeing that his own advisors are leading him in that direction. So he's pulling back. And so I think both sides have kind of seen what the other is willing to do. And so, you know, hopefully in a professional administration, you you would actually have back channel negotiations happening. You'd have some sort of process. I just don't know if these guys are adept enough to do that. And the ones who are adept at actually manipulating the system and working in the bureaucracy are the people like John Bolton, who are doing everything they can to make sure these talks never happen because they are afraid that Trump would actually strike a deal. Well, this is my concern about Bolton and Pompeo is that, you know, these were both guys who very successfully managed to avoid going to Vietnam, but they are just so enthusiastic about sending other people's children into war with Iran or any place else for that matter. I mean, they never, neither of them ever saw a war they didn't like. And that does not encourage me (laughs) at all. Jamal, we have just a minute here left. We're talking to Jamal Abdi, the uh, president of the National Iranian American Council. Is there anything that Americans can or should be doing to try to stabilize the situation. Is this the sort of thing that's amenable to our calling our members of Congress, for example, and saying, please consider so-and-so? Yeah, 
and you know, I had high hopes for this Congress, the the Democratic House, that you know they would be well positioned to respond to things like that, that like what's happening. And you would think that with the possibility of a war with Iran being so imminent, that there would be more alarm bells going off. And we haven't quite seen that. We've seen a little bit of it, but. In about two weeks, Congress will begin considering their annual defense authorization bill, and there is a push to include language in there that would bar any funding for a war with Iran and would make it very clear to people like Pompeo that you can't use any previous war authorizations and try to connect Iran to al-Qaeda or something like that to give cover for a war with Iran. And so Congress does need to hear that this is important, that this is a priority, so that they actually pass that legislation. There was a previous attempt to actually pass this, and it was Debbie Wasserman Schultz in the arm in the Appropriations Committee who hit the pause button on that. So we need to actually, we need to win the next time this comes up. Okay. So should we be calling Debbie Wasserman Schultz's office too and saying, hey, help us prevent a war with Iran? She should definitely be hearing from us. And then Adam Smith and the members of the Armed Services Committee really need to hear that we have their back on preventing this war. Thank you. Jamal Abdi, the president of NIAC, NIAC.org. Thanks, Jamal. Thanks, Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be coming to your city soon on our book tour for the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. I'll be in New York, Washington, D.C., Portland, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago, and Minneapolis. Here I come. More information is available at TomHartman.com. Hey, it's Friday. We've been dealing with Trump all week. Ouch! What's the best pain reliever? Ah! CBD oil. There you go. CBD oil. And I'm not talking about the stuff that gets you high. I'm talking about the stuff that relieves pain. Literally and is an anti-inflammatory. New Leaf Naturals, nuleafnaturals.com, makes the best, in my experience, the best CBD oil in the United States. It is just absolutely extraordinary stuff. New Leaf Naturals, highly concentrated. It's actually the highest quality CBD oil on the market. 100% organic, grown right here in the United States, contains no additional additives, highly concentrated. The only ingredient that it's made from is hemp, So the product remains in its most pure and simple form and also legal. So you can buy this stuff right now, and and it really does work. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-Leaf. New is spelled N-U. N-U-Leafnaturals.com. And if you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you'll get 30% off plus free shipping in the U.S. T-H-O-M, newleafnaturals, N-U-Leafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place. It's not going to make Donald Trump go away, but it sure will make you feel better. NewLeafNaturals.com, NewLeafNaturals.com, and use Tom, T-H-O-M, to get you 30% off and free shipping. Tom Harbin here with you, and on the line with us is Lori Wallach, the Executive Director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Tradewatch.org is the website, or citizen.org slash trade. And uh, Lori, of course, can be uh, tweeted at Wallach, W-A-L-L-A-C-H, Lori, L-O-R-I, and Public Citizens Global Trade Watch is P-C-G-T-W. Lori, welcome back to the program. Thank you. So what's the latest in the uh, U.S.-China trade situation? Well, it's a little bit up in the air. The talks have broken down, so there is no imminent agreement. And I would say that overall, the situation is that while we definitely have a serious problem with our current China trade policies and something needs to be done, 
it's not clear that this administration is going to be able to succeed in the changes that are needed, and that's really for two different reasons. Okay, and what are those reasons? Well, first of all, the only way that China is going to change the conduct is the interlocking elite leadership that is the business world, that is the government and that is the military, and they're all intermeshed. It's not separate like here. It has to become in the interest of those interests to make a change. Mm -hmm. And their biggest interest is maintaining power. So we needed really to have our allies, the European Union, Japan, Canada, Mexico, Australia, everyone working together with us to just cut out all potential markets so that when everyone basically said to China, either change your rules or you can't sell stuff here, the elite would say, oh God, we're gonna lose the deal we've made with our public, which is they'll give away their rights because they're gonna have a job based on this predatory trade policy. Well, if all of a sudden the trade policy isn't gonna work, they're gonna to have to change those policies to continue to have the economy churning. Now they can kind of try and go around the US and cut us off. So number one, we didn't make this move, which is important to make. The trade representative is exactly right. We cannot go on as is, but with some of the other actions, other parts of the administration took, that have gotten a bunch of our allies annoyed on trade, among other things, <laughs> we're out there on our own. Second thing is what they're asking for. So they're asking for some of the right stuff. China needs to stop ripping off US technology for our industrial production. If an invention is made here, why shouldn't US workers make it here? However, a lot of the things that need to actually be fixed to have a different role for China in the global economy that works for working people here and there aren't on the agenda. And that is, for instance, dealing with the absolute absence of labor rights, human rights, even the right to organize and protest anything so that you have U.S. multinationals hand in glove with this government in China offshoring our jobs to pay people horrific wages and literally jail people who try and organize a union. So some of the asks for the fixes are not quite right. Hmm. It's a problem that needs to be fixed, but it's not clear we're going to get there right now. So we're kind of nibbling around the edges, it seems, in some ways. Can we talk tariffs for a minute? Sure. This country was built on tariffs. The federal government budget of the United States, 90% of the federal budget during the Thomas Jefferson administration, for example, was revenue from tariffs. It was in the neighborhood of 90% right up to the Civil War. About two-thirds of our government funding until World War I came from tariffs, about a third of it up until World War II, and now it's pretty negligible. Tariffs made American manufacturing competitive with international manufacturing for the American market forever, and you know this stuff as well as I do. Ravi Batra is an economist. He teaches at Texas Methodist University and the New York Times bestselling author of a number of books on economics. And he wrote a piece over the weekend that he pointed out to me, and I haven't yet had an opportunity to really go on a rant on, a, on this show, but it was pretty startling to me. He said that tariffs don't actually increase prices. And I was like, how is that possible? And he's like, here it is, very straightforward. Say that there's a company in, in China that's making t-shirts and selling them into the U.S. market for 20 bucks. You know, and then in the United States, they sell them for 40 bucks. And uh, you put a 25% tariff on those T-shirts. So now the T-shirts, instead of costing $20, are costing 25 or 30 or whatever 25% plus is, right? That would be $25 to come into the United States. 
Well, that Chinese manufacturer has elbow room in their profits, which is the first place where you would expect to see a change. But the bigger place, he said, what happens is that American manufacturers or other manufacturers, Indonesian, Malaysian, or whatever, will say, hey, we can sell that, even if the tariff was universal, we can sell that t-shirt for less. And so they start competing with the Chinese manufacturer. And at that point, the Chinese have to lower their price in order to hold on to their market. And he gave example after example after example, you know, throughout history where tariffs did not raise prices. You know, the, this whole mantra is, oh, that tariff, that 25%, all of that is being paid for by the American consumer. And yet we're not seeing inflation, product inflation here in the United States. And I think it's because of what Ravi just described. What do you think about all that? Well, I mean, he has part of the answer for sure except if there's a product that really is monopolized not only in one country where the price can be controlled, but where they're competing suppliers, for sure, what he said is right. But the other factor, if you think about the math that you just described, consider that Nike pair of tennis shoes that, for instance, is 120 bucks retail. The price when it gets into the U.S., with the tariffs paid, with the transportation, with the actual cost of the shoe, is some small modicum of that. Let's just make it up, $30. Right. So there's $90 of space in there. So that just assume a big tariff is hit, and now the price, the wholesale price, goes to $50 instead of $30. It's still $120 you could charge a consumer. That's what the market will bear. The profit can be compacted a little bit without jamming the consumer with a higher price. Right. And that's another feature of why there is no automatic increase in prices when tariffs are put in place. Yeah, makes absolutely perfect sense. So the trade war with China and all this kind of stuff, one of the pieces of this that has a lot of people concerned is China's basically threat to do something about rare earth minerals. We used to have a fairly substantial rare earth mineral mine, I believe, in California. And we shut it down because China was mining and exporting rare earth minerals at basically below the cost that they could be produced in the United States. Do I have that right, first of all? And if so, is the alternative to Chinese rare earth minerals, if this continues, to reboot that mine in California? Well, to reboot domestic production and also to seek those inputs from other places. So part of the downside to sort of China's predatory strategy is what they try and do is they either buy up the competitors in other countries or they price stuff below the cost of production and wipe out, force out of business the competitors. Then they have a monopoly in something that's crucial. The rare earth minerals are, for instance, used for cell phones and other things we all use. Then they raise the price. So really, in a certain way, if China's monopolized a market and then China's production becomes subject to tariffs and sanctions, it creates an incentive for not just U.S. production to restart, but in other countries, which that kind of redundancy is in our interest anyway for yeah. national security. Absolutely. Yeah. So it could be an interesting incentive to actually bring back online competing suppliers. Yeah, because we're in a situation right now where we literally cannot build a missile without rare earths from China. We're in a very bad situation broadly. For instance, there are many different kinds of heavy, large steel beams that we need for fundamental infrastructure, for bridges, for highways, things we need just to have our country functioning, skip the military angle, that we basically have seen put out of business here. We have to import them. For a continental-sized country of this size with this kind of an economy, that is just not an acceptable state of affairs for our own domestic economic security, really, as well as our national security. Right. Yeah, it's serious stuff. We're talking with Laurie Wallach, the executive director of Public Citizens Global 
TradeWatch. TradeWatch.org is the website. What's up with Donald Trump essentially rebranding NAFTA and, and uh, you know, how's that going? Oy. Yeah, so. that's what I figured. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the situation, which everyone like, you know, hold on to your chairs because it is very likely we're going to see a NAFTA showdown. The Democrats have been very clear. There must be improvements to the deal on NAFTA that Trump signed last year. It's necessary if the deal is going to be good for working people. The deal right now that was signed won't stop outsourcing of jobs and it would lock in monopoly protections for pharmaceutical corporations that would keep our medicine prices high. So the Democrats have all said, hey, we will support a NAFTA that stops the ongoing damage, and we want to work with you to improve the thing you signed to get it to a place where it does that. But as is, it's not going to fix things. It's going to raise medicine prices. It's got to be fixed. And now the administration had been saying, we'll work with you. And I think that's really what the trade representative intends to do. But President Trump has been on a Trumpian temper tantrum. And so now he's kicking and screaming and saying, I want the vote now, before anything gets changed. Right. Except the Democrats are a majority in the House. So the Speaker has said, eh, we're not voting on another, Democrats are not going to support another trade agreement that's bad for American working people. Huh. So now it's going to be an eyeball to eyeball between Pelosi and Trump. Is he going to make the changes? Or is she going to have to stop the agreement? Yeah, remarkable. Do you think that if the Democrats support, quote, free trade as opposed to fair trade going into this election, that Donald Trump will eat their lunch? I'm very scared of that, Tom. When I hear Joe Biden two months ago at the University of Pennsylvania bemoaning the fact we're not in the TPP, when he two weeks ago said, yes, he supported NAFTA and that was the right thing to do, it makes me want to rip my hair out. Thank God Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Tim Ryan, other members who are running are saying the smart thing, which is, yes, Trump was half right. Our trade agreements have been terrible for working people. Our trade policies have been corporate rigged. The difference is some of those candidates, unlike Biden, understand we have to replace the old system, not go back to it. Yeah, amen. Lori Wallach, the executive director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, uh, tradewatch.org, the website. Lori, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. It's always great talking with you, and it's always informative. Oh, boy, what a day. There's a lot going on. Maurice in Chicago. Hey, Maurice, you want to talk about China? What's up? Hey, the cost of living is up, Tom. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> Good. Hey, how, how are you, Maurice? God bless you, man, and thanks for all you do to help make us all a little bit smarter, man. Thank while you. America seems intent on dumbing us all down. Thank you. What's on your mind, though? This Chinese situation. Mm -hmm. I told you Monday that you can't apply political solutions to economic problems, right? Yes. And while U.S. businesses look at the next quarter, China is looking at the next quarter century. That's correct. In and fact, I think they're looking at the next century, literally. Okay, I got it. Yes, sir. And uh, they're under no illusions that this thing is all about money, all about power, and all about economics, brother. And do you remember what they used to say about the uh, British Empire when the sun never sets on right. the British Empire? Yep. This is now the Chinese mindset, and they don't mind wrecking the American economy to get there.
Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. In, in 1996, I published a book called Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. And in that book was a chapter, I'm not sure if it's in the current edition or not, but I had spent the month of November in 1988 in China, living in Beijing at a, at a, at a hospital where they were teaching acupuncture. I was there to learn acupuncture. And I talked with a number of people, and I told one of those stories in the book, which was of this young fellow who was kind of fairly high up, not in the party, but in the system, as it were. And he said... The last century was the American century. The century before that was the British century. The century before that was the Dutch century. And the next century, and keep in mind, this was 1988. He was referring to after 2000. The next century is going to be the Chinese century. And, you know, and that was not a sentiment that was only narrowly held. I think it was broadly held across China. And and that was during the Reagan administration. That was when we were starting to open up to China and beginning the negotiations to bring them into a World Trade Organization, all that other kind of stuff. Look at them now, man. Look at them now. They're the second largest economy in the world. Yeah. They don't want to be like Avis. Avis? (laughs) Oh, number two. There you go. Yes. There you go. Well said. Thanks a lot, Maurice, and you too. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Do you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-G-O-L-D. Nicholas down in San Cristobal, Mexico, and moderating in our YouTube chat room. Hey, Hi. Nicholas, what's up? How are you, Tom? Great. Good to talk to you again. Back uh, sorry if you hear some barking in the background, some of the five street rescues. A couple of good things south of the border and some updates. This falls under the category of things you don't believe can happen, but then sometimes do when miracles happen. Sure. Uh, the new uh, Secretary of the Environment, appointed by AMLO, the new president, has declared, with uh, no beating around the bush here, that neoliberal parasitic predators have been responsible for global climate woes worldwide. Wow, that's, that, 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 that's a headline that never appeared in the United that's States. That's a headline, right? Neoliberal parasitic predatory, you know who's... Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? That's quite a uh, statement. That is. At any rate, he goes on to say, we have a choice. We can defend life, or we can continue destroying it in the name of the market, technology, progress, developments, and economic growth. Wow. That's something else, huh? That is incredible. I mean, that should be yeah. front-page news here in the United States. I, you know, at least on page two at the bottom somewhere, yeah. wouldn't yeah. you think? Yeah. yeah. No, it's exactly what they do not want reported upon. Because he's a big deal. This is one of AMLO's favorite guys. And the Secretaryship of the Environment is a new 
secretaryship and very important. Anyway, it goes on about the importance of legislation to ban shale fracking forever from all of Mexico and also to ban all genetically modified crops, including corn, of course. Wow. Other bits of info that fall under this can't happen. They have arrested the president of Mexico's largest steel company and have an arrest warrant out for the ex-president of Pemex, which is Petroleos Mexicanos Pink Exxon. So it's as though they have an arrest warrant out for Rex Tillerson. They've arrested the head of U.S. Steel, essentially, but Mexican Steel, all for some fraudulent sales of fertilizer plants to Petroleos Mexicanos Pemex back in 2014. They're after the big guys, Tom. Wow. It's incredible. So how long will it be before we see the uh, kind of backlash that happened to Chavez when he did this kind of stuff? I mean, yeah, Chavez well, went farther than this. He, would, he was nationalizing these things. Yeah. I'm sorry? That's, that's the concern and the worry. But, you know, I don't think this time it's going to happen, not with Mexico. The people are so over the whole thing. Right. They've been so riled up for such a long while now, before the election, that I think this is really something that's actually happening underway and is going to continue to the good of the people. So is AMLO... Uh, on, on, AMLO is the new, newly elected president of Mexico. Right. You've, you've referred to him in the past as the Bernie Sanders yeah. of Mexico. I, I, I would yeah, say maybe, yeah. maybe the Elizabeth Warren of Mexico. He, he yeah. doesn't quite call himself a socialist, does he? I mean, he's, he's uh, just he, pursuing he's these FDR-like policies. A democratic socialist. A democratic socialist as well in his venue of his uh-huh. self-descriptions. Okay. Uh, he describes himself mostly as a progressive in favor of the people. He doesn't like labels a lot. Mm-hmm. But he's doing all the right stuff, so... How is the but press the down, treating him the down there in Mexico? This, this whole stuff with the Trump's new tariffs against Mexico. This is bad for the main, main reason, of course, the obvious reason. Migration through Mexico has nothing to do with trade between Mexico and the United States, which is a NAFTA, essentially, quote-unquote, NAFTA-controlled right. operation. I got dogs barking, sorry. I got it. Dogs? Cool. This puts Mexico in a terrible bind. They adhere to international laws regarding migration through their country. AMLO is a very big proponent of the safeguarding of migrants. So I don't know what's going to happen. Well, this isn't just migrants. These are refugees, essentially. These are people uh, fleeing disasters in their own countries. Yeah, but I think the laws by which Mexico abides are the international laws on migration. As these people, for whatever reason, pass through the country, they have to be safeguarded, they have to be fed, they have to be watered, they have to, you know, have safe places to survive. Right. Yeah, yeah, I can't. Nicholas, I got a boogie, but thank you for the call. By the way, there's just an amazing story out there that has to do with the census, and this is something that's before the Supreme Court right now. I was going to rant about it earlier, but Bob Phillips is with us, the executive director of Common Cause in North Carolina. CommonCause.org slash North-Carolina is the uh, website. The Twitter handle is CommonCauseNC, as you may guess. Bob, welcome to the program. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. What's the story here? What's going on with this? It's a bit of a complicated story. I'll try to be brief. Uh, Here in North Carolina, we have a pending lawsuit on uh, extreme partisan gerrymandering, one of the mastermind behind gerrymandering here in North Carolina. And across the country has been a guy named Tom Hoffler, who lived in Raleigh, but he was kind of the guru of the gerrymandering for the Republicans uh, around the country. He passed away in August of 2018. His daughter found a lot of hard drives after his death with us, wanted to share these. And 
in this treasure trove of files, 75,000 files, we found this memo that Hoffler had written regarding putting the citizenship question on the census, which has a connection, obviously, to redistricting. But today, that's the big story out there, that the motives for the Trump administration perhaps putting this question on the census really has not been about enforcing the Voting Rights Act, as they have stated, but really to gain partisan advantage for Republicans. This is what the Hoffler memo suggested. And when I say memo, it was a scientific study, pages and pages of, you know, what he did. And this was his research and studies, I should say, into how a citizenship question would depress particularly Latinos from participating in the census and dilute the voting strength of certainly Latino communities across the country. That may sound a bit convoluted, but that's kind of where we are today. So my understanding of how this works is the census goes out and counts how many people there are and where they are. And two of the more consequential results of that are, number one, wherever there's a lot of people, there can be more federal dollars going there, whether it's to build infrastructure or whether it's to provide for you know whatever it may be. And number two, the number of people you have defines the boundaries of the congressional districts. And for that matter, at more macro level at the state level, if your population starts dropping substantially, you can actually lose a member of Congress. In fact, I think a couple of states did this after the last census. And or you can gain a member of Congress. So if you can intimidate or frighten, or whatever the appropriate word is, people who may well be U.S. citizens, but the friend living in their house, or the the brother-in-law who just came to, to live with them, or lives next door, or whatever, or just people in the neighborhood are not U.S. citizens, they get so freaked out about being asked if they're U.S. citizens, and being worried that if they answer Yes, they've committed a crime. And if they answer no, ICE is going to be at their doorstep the next day. And the Trump administration has even come out and said, we may share the census information. We can legally share it. They haven't said that they're going to. We can share this with ICE. That will cause people not to answer the question, which is going to have these two impacts. Number one, it's going to reduce the amount of money coming into these communities, you know, throwing them into tailspins. And number two, it's going to reduce their voting power, essentially, in the U.S. House of Representatives and in state chambers. Do I have all that right? Did I summarize? That? That's exactly right. It's a bit breathtaking, again, that the guy that was rigging maps across the country literally had a very large role in trying to rig the census for partisan gain. But what yeah. you've stated is correct. So this is really <clears throat> shocking. Now, the case before the U.S. Supreme Court was basically this. I mean, the Republicans are arguing before the U.S. Supreme Court that we need to have this question on the census, which uh, apparently the, uh, the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, put there. Now, we need to, he's in charge of the census. We need to have this question on the census because we need to know where the citizens are and the non-citizens are. And, you know, I think you can probably build a reasonable case for that being useful information, but maybe or maybe not essential information. But the Democrats are saying, no, wait a minute, you really are trying to do this to intimidate people into not answering the census so that you can screw the districts that are heavily Hispanic. And the arguments have already been made before the Supreme Court, have they not? I mean, I thought the decision was going to come out in the next, uh, you know, two to five weeks. And if that's the case... Uh, how, what kind of, now that we know for a fact that the whole Republican citizenship question on the census not only was 
definitely, you know, a, a racial gerrymander attempt, essentially. But on top of that was backed up by years of scientific research to prove that this would be the way to do it. I mean, do we have a, the ability to, to, to influence the Supreme Court at this point? Great question, Tom. And my understanding is that just literally within the hour, the ACLU, which is the uh, named plaintiff in that lawsuit you referred, has filed a notice with the U.S. Supreme Court providing them this evidence. This evidence was also uh, part of a brief that was filed this morning in the New York District Court where that census trial originated. And the relief being asked is basically to have the defendants uh, respond and, and, and explain. Um, there are people who have uh, testified before Congress, people in the Commerce Department and people in the Department of Justice, that may very well um, have perjured themselves. If they, if you, if you look at uh, the, the memo, again, that was found, this 2015 memo, uh, and how it was used, and then what was actually stated before Congress are uh, 180 apart. So all this, of course, uh, is something that the justices at the Supreme Court uh, will see, whether they have written the opinion or not, uh, and this is just, you know, speculation, whether then they might go back and either rewrite or whether a justice maybe decides to peel away from, I guess, what many have been anticipating might be a 5-4 majority that goes with the Trump administration on this question. Um, good question. Mechanically, there is not a real easy way to say, hey, U.S. Supreme Court, new evidence. Now you need to take this into consideration, but right. everything that's possible is being done to see that that can perhaps, you know, happen. Right. And finally, uh, you know, obviously Republicans have been lying about this since 2015. I mean, this was known at the high levels of the party, you know, encouraged and promoted and all this kind of stuff. And they lied to Congress. And we know that there are penalties for lying to Congress. I mean, you know, Michael Cohen is sitting in jail in part because he lied to Congress, I believe. But lying to the Supreme Court, I don't, to the best of my recollection, nobody has ever been prosecuted for lying to the Supreme Court. Is that against the law? That's a great question. It certainly seems I'm not an attorney, and so I don't know that I can answer that accurately, but it certainly seems like it's not something that would be good. I wouldn't certainly want to be uh, found guilty of that or being accused of it. Uh, this is, though, you know, living in this time we are in, the shock factor and wondering uh, you know, how it plays. But I think the more that people are made aware of this, and I appreciate the fact you're uh, covering it today on your show, uh, is important because uh, it, it needs to be discussed and we need to look at this. And certainly we hope that the high court takes another look as well. Bob Phillips, executive director with Common Cause North Carolina, commoncause.org slash north dash Carolina. Bob, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. I do appreciate it. Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cyber crimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home as collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, 
Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. Well, let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and loving what you do, Ellen Ratner's new book. And on the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News from New York, Luke Vargas, who also does a podcast, and you can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Luke, Mexico, 5% tariffs going up to 25% tariffs if they don't stop immigration in the United States, which, of course, is never going to happen. So how is Mexico playing this? Yeah. You know, we spend 40, 50, 60 billion dollars a year, depending on how you look at it, to try and do exactly this at our southern border. And we've been failing. <laughs> yet right. We're now expecting or asking Mexico to do the impossible here. And it's worth really pointing out. I've done several interviews on this this morning, talking to Mexican immigration experts and people watching this all over the hemisphere. And they basically say that the level of cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico on immigration the past few months, really since the start of the Trump administration, has been pretty good. They've, by and yeah. large, complied with three of the big requests of President Trump so far, which is to beef up enforcement of the southern border with Guatemala, where a lot of people enter into Mexico in the first place from Central America. They have been trying to create asylum systems that either allow people to stay in southern Mexico to get work permits there or to stay in places like Guatemala before going on to their onward journeys. That's, again, not perfect, but its effort has been dedicated there. And they're trying to deal with human trafficking and drug smuggling, which is, again, something Trump loves to rail on. And so depending on how you look at this, it's possible Trump is basically painting himself as being someone who's issuing a very sternly worded demand. And then when Mexico says, look, we actually are cooperating, here's what we're doing, he can point to that suddenly. And again, the context of this, these programs already being in the works don't really matter to a Fox News audience. But you could then say, hey, look, look at all these areas of cooperation. Now we don't need to go down this tariff route. At the same right. time, it's a little worrisome that he's ignoring the cooperation that already exists and distorting this as much as the president had. And that doesn't necessarily give people confidence here. You know, and I would also point out, this is a pretty conciliatory, peaceable letter, I thought, from Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the, the Mexican president. But, you know, read the Mexican papers this morning, and you can tell the commentary class in that country is getting fed up with this. You know, yes. I have long postulated there's sort of been kind of a wink-wink here where the Mexican political establishment realizes Trump is going to bash Mexico until the end of his life, you know, his last tweet. Well, he's <laughs> going to do it certainly up time. until the end of the election. Right. Well, and I have a hunch it'll go even beyond that, uh, just gauging from the way he's, you know, treated immigrants uh, throughout his business career. But, you know, I at the same time, I think there was sort of an acknowledgement we might have to put up with some verbal bashing. But at the same time, you know, maybe the president will stop short of actually completely screwing up the relationship or purposely harming the relationship. And I think there's concern now from Mexican opinion leaders that this has gone too far, that Mexico actually needs to start being more forcible in how it pushes back here. And I would, the thing to watch, I don't think I'm breaking ranks here from other analysts, is that, you know, what happens with this U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement? You've seen some efforts in the past few weeks 
particularly targeted at Canada, coming from the Trump administration, but also towards Mexico, to really try and get this deal ratified by you know the Congress, by the Canadian Parliament and the Mexican right. legislature, and that there were steps being taken to try and sort of pacify these relationships even more, bring trade back to normal sort of pre-tariff levels as a way of incentivizing all these countries to ink this thing. And now I think, you know, you're seeing Mexico scramble some of its trade negotiators and sending them to Washington today, threatening that, you know, if these tariffs go ahead, that this whole trade relationship is going to break down. So it seems possible here that the timing of this on Trump's part was really inopportune, unless, and some have said this, and this is where I think my expertise starts to dry up a little bit, but unless, you know, there is an effort, you know, going on in the White House to try and get more concessions from Mexico to this trade deal than had already been agreed to as a way of trying to make its passage to the U.S. Congress a little bit easier. I don't know the politics of who opposes this deal in the Democratic or Republican caucuses, but you know that's one sort of interpretation I've seen. But again, it's kind of head-scratching because the things Trump is asking Mexico to do here are either impossible or are things that they're sort of already doing in degrees and ought to be getting more credit for than, of course, they're getting. Right. I can tell you, Luke, you know, I grew up in Michigan, in the middle of car country in Lansing, Michigan. And in the 70s, in the 70s and the early 80s, there was all this, I mean, literally in the mid-1970s, if you drove a Japanese car, you could guarantee that if you parked at any mall, any large mall, you could go in, shop for an hour, come out, your car will have been keyed by somebody who was an auto worker, who was PO'd that we were importing cars from Japan. And there was also, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment that was not Mm -hmm. so much racially driven as it was, this guy wants to take my job. And Trump is campaigning on jobs. He's not saying it out loud, but working people all across the country, particularly in the industrial Midwest, know this. Mm -hmm. And they know it at a deep level that when Trump talks about immigration, yeah, the racists hear that message. But the working people, they get the message that he's talking about those people have been taking our jobs, those people in quotes. And when he talks about trade, they also know that the only reason why General Motors right now is making engine blocks in Mexico is because the labor's cheaper there. The only reason that Walmart is buying buying stuff, companies are making stuff in China for Walmart, is because the labor's cheaper there. People get that. And so by running on immigration and trade, which are the two focal points of Trump's campaign for re-election, he is activating that white middle class working base, even in the Democrats. These are the Obama Democrats who voted for Donald Trump. And they're going to vote for him again if he keeps doing this. I think that what he's doing is strategically going to work for him. Now, whether he brings down the whole economy or not, that's going to be another question. Yeah, you're right. The the voters he's going after here don't care that the U.S. trade representative is probably pulling his hair out after having... No, and they don't care what happens to the stock market either. They don't own stock. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. I will say, you know, if you're China or you're Japan or other countries that are negotiating with the U.S. on trade, this should give you a thousand reasons to not trust the U.S. as a negotiating partner. But again, that's a very different set of political uh, implications. Yeah, I think this is this is this is all about November 2020. And like I said, I'm on Trump's mailing list and this is all he's talking about is trade, is jobs, trade and jobs and immigration and jobs. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind? Well, first off, I highly recommend your write-up on the trade issue to everyone. And there's also a good companion piece to it, also on Common Dreams from a Canadian perspective by Maude 
Barlow, which is mm. was posted on on last Sunday, posted on the twenty sixth. It's called. It was titled "In the Face of Right Wing Strongmen and the Economy Rife with Insecurity, We Must Reject the Politics of Despair." And you know, our neighbors to the north are going. They, they're facing a lot of the same problems that you talk about, going from exporting and manufacturing economy to an importing and extractive economy. Fortunately for them, though, Tom, they have triple the unionization rate as we do. And of course, they have their Medicare for all health system. So right. those are two things. So those are two things, along with fair trade that we definitely need any Democratic nominee to be completely on board with in 2020. But I want to talk about uh, the impeachment stuff. And I hope you're right when you say Nancy Pelosi knows what she's doing, Tom, because I do fear, as has been the case with these free trade policies, that centrist Democrats might be underestimating the capacity of the average American to decipher what is fair and what is just. I think they're overestimating it, frankly. The Democrats need to learn from when the Republicans went after Hillary Clinton for her emails and for Benghazi. The Democrats need to do the same thing right now with Donald Trump. They need to hold basically show trials in the House of Representatives. Forgive the interruption, Jeff. Back to you. If the GOP, the Republicans, keep blocking and stymieing these hearings and preventing witnesses from testifying, then isn't the next step, doesn't it have to be opening an impeachment inquiry? And if Nancy, who didn't have the whatever you want to say to do that with Bush for having a million people die for lies in Iraq, you know, we know that Maxine Waters or a different Democratic speaker would be willing to open an impeachment inquiry. So what do you think about that? Right. Well, uh, with regard to Bush, again, the Democrats should have been playing hardball. They They should have had hearings and they should have had show trials on Bush's war crimes. And, you know, they were just afraid, concerned about splitting the country. Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi is... I think she's right that you can't just launch into impeachment without the American people realizing that there are crimes here. I think Donnie Deutsch is absolutely right in saying we need to stop using the word impeachment. We need to start using the word Trump crimes or the phrase Trump's crimes or the Trump crime family. That's mine, not his. You know, we need to be talking about crimes. We have a criminal in the White House and he got there through committing crimes, you know, through campaign finance fraud. I mean, he's he's president because of crimes. But the fact of the matter is that the American people don't know that, by and large. I mean, there's there's a few million political junkies out there who watch on the right Fox and on the left MSNBC or Free Speech TV. But outside of that, most Americans are just kind of worried about their paychecks. They're not paying attention. So, Jeff, I think that the, the show trials need to begin, and they need to begin tomorrow morning or Monday morning. Jeff, thanks a lot. for Actually, Congress comes back next week, so that's when they need to begin. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And if the Democrats can't get Republicans to come and testify, they need to get some good Democrats to come in and testify and speculate about what's going on. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, uh, T-H-O-M Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, you know, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch on, on uh, basically uh, non-public YouTube uh, links. 
And also, we regularly put up new rants. The one I just did is about the Supreme Court. It's based in part on my book, Unequal Protection, and based in part on a book I'm writing, I'm working on right now in the Supreme Court, and in part just, you know, what, what I know and you need to know about how the Supreme Court got as badly corrupted as it is. How did we get here, right? I mean, how did we end up with, with a bunch of crazy right-wingers on the court? And what can we do about it? There actually are ways that we can address this problem of the corruption of the Supreme Court. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman here with you. Brad in Woodlake, Virginia. Hey, Brad, it says you disagree with me. What's up? One thing I agree with you on, I think Trump is a cancer to our country. I just wanted to comment on the one caller who said that the Republicans are ignoring legislation from the House. And I just saying that it's both parties that do that, because when the Republicans had the House and the Democrats had the Senate and the White House, they just sat on all the legislation that the House passed over, too. Nothing's being done for both sides. To me, it's just more about Democrat-Republican, because I'm a Republican, but I also have compassion for people. I give, I do a lot of work. Over the last four years, I've donated 100 computers that I refixed, but it's just nothing is getting done for any of us. Yeah. Brad, you know, the Democrats in this session just recently have passed bills to expand health care. They passed a bill to get money out of politics. They passed a bill to stop the revolving door with lobbyists. They passed legislation to strengthen our election infrastructure. All of these things, as you correctly point out, Mitch McConnell is refusing to take up in the Senate. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There was legislation passed by the Republican House that died in Harry Reid's Senate. The legislation that I remember was bizarre stuff. It was legislation to undo Obamacare. Well, let me flip this around. Brad, can you identify any single piece of legislation that the Republican Party with majority Republican votes got out of the Republican House of Representatives that died in Harry Reid's Senate? And that piece of legislation's principal goal was to help the average American. Can you identify one piece of legislation? To me, the Affordable Care Act needed something majorly done to it because it also hurt a lot of people. I worked for a school. They gave us part-time insurance benefits. And at the time, I had probably over a dozen operations in three years. And the school I was working for, teaching for them, because that policy didn't meet those the certain minimums, it was covering me up to $10,000 No, a year I, I, I get I that, Brad. There were, there were winners and losers in Obamacare. But that was not my question. My question was, can you, in fact, let me broaden the scope a little bit. Can you, in the last 50 years... Name one piece of legislation that has been passed into law that was originated with Republicans and passed by Republicans whose principal beneficiary was the average working American rather than the billionaire class. Can you name one piece well, of legislation in the last 50 years? The tax cuts that went through, my wife and I took home, take home an extra five or $600 a month from that. So you're really we're, happy we're that Donald worried. Trump borrowed in your name a trillion and a half dollars and gave 83% of it to billionaires and you're happy that your taxes went down, but all of the rest of us are went up. And of course, you're going to have to pay the interest on that debt. That, so you think that that's something that benefits average Americans. That seems to me like a very, very weak soup here, Brad. Can't well, you come up with something that's actually helping working people, not just helping the billionaires? I said the principal recipients, the principal beneficiaries are not the billionaires, but are the average American. You know, the principal beneficiaries of the tax cut were the billionaires. One piece of legislation from the Republican Party in the last 50 years. Please name it. I just did. It's more money in my pocket. My wife and I. It did not principally benefit working people, Brad. It didn't principally benefit working people. One piece of legislation, please, in 50 years. 
I'm, I'm hearing you too. Next time, Pat. I'm listening. I'm well. I can't hear now. I don't know what happened. I it, Brad's phone faded out or something. Anyhow, uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Fascinating day, and thank God we got our phones working. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It's not something that we just sit around and wait for. It's not something that we just you know is going to magically happen. It actually requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.